0: They market to us not just in order to sell us their customers' diet plan, but in order to increase the odds that we actually do what we've been predicted to do. It's really to reduce human spontaneity.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. And a quick reminder that we have launched our two-in-one winter fundraiser to raise funds for my upcoming Climate Ride event, raising money to fight against climate change, of course, and our membership drive to help support the show, including incentives like t-shirts and hoodies that we only make available during campaign drives. So check out the campaign at bestoftheleft.com slash winter17 or find the big banner right on the homepage of our website. And of course, there's a link to the campaign write in the notes on the device you're using and now welcome to the award-winning best of the left podcast with clips today from the show, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, We the Podcast, a TED Talk and Thinking Cap.
2: I'll draw you a landscape of the of the data industry, the data marketplace. There are three big companies in the world, <laughs> in this world. There's Amazon. Amazon doesn't sell your information. It collects your information as you buy stuff. There's Facebook. Facebook doesn't sell your information directly, although it sells categories of people to advertisers and that's how it makes money. So it doesn't sell, doesn't say, hey, Kathy O'Neill is a woman with a PhD, white, living in New York. It doesn't do that. But if it if you want to advertise to white women in New York at who's four or 45 years old, then you'll find me, right? They also, I think, buy information from data warehousing companies, um, which we're going to talk about in a second. And then there's Google, who doesn't sell your information either, but does indirectly sell your information to advertisers through categories like Facebook. And I don't think Google buys data elsewhere. And then outside those three big companies, who are like islands that collect data, they don't sell data, they collect data, and they mm-hmm. use data, but they don't sell it. Then there's just an enormous industry of secondhand data markets, which is to say, if you go to sort of any site outside those three those three companies, there are things called pixels, where where third-party data-gathering companies will bombard you with cookies, and they'll track you, and they'll see, oh, I saw you at FootLocker.com, and now I'm seeing you at Zazzle.com, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then they collect all this information about you. There's hundreds and hundreds of those companies that do that. And they sell that information to big data warehousing companies like Axiom. And Axiom is one, is I think the biggest data warehousing company that collects all this information as well as scraping public records. Um, and then it creates profiles for every consumer in the country. Axiom has a profile on everybody. And then Axiom then is a middleman and it turns around and sells those profiles to companies that are interested like insurance companies probably buy that probably large employers like walmart I, d- I don't know exactly who the customers of axiom are because it's a secret so i don't want to say something incorrect but that's they are the middleman and they are they a very profitable company that that buys data about you and sells profiles to other people
3: and uh this may not be in your wheelhouse but um does uh, do not track does tracking ad blocking does all these devices that have grown up to uh, supposedly grant uh, internet users a uh, a scintilla of privacy do they keep you out of that marketplace or does that just thin your your data flow to uh, the the data merchandisers
2: so ad blockers doesn't thin anything ad blockers just doesn't let you see it at the end of the day the advertising um, but it doesn't prevent a future potential employer by to buy information about you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So ad blockers just as a way of kind of ignoring something, but it doesn't stop tracking as far as I know at all. Uh-huh. I, I might be wrong about that. Um, there's the do not track. You can, mm-hmm. you can set your browser to do to, to not track. It It is not uh it's not honored. Nobody honors that as far as I know, it's just mm. ignored. So that's your, you're asking nicely and they're ignoring you. You're tracked, but I'll, I'll say I'll say something, which is that I don't I don't really care about that for for myself. Um, and I'm going to go back to what I was saying about the VC and what he made me realize is that this system isn't going to hurt me. I mean, I'm not saying it will never hurt me at all, but I'm saying it. I'm not the victim here.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: The victims are the people who have their demographics working against them in multiple ways. Um, and they're the ones that are in every algorithmic system deemed the losers. So going back to for-profit colleges for a second, they're not just looking for poor people. They're looking for poor people that are also unaware of how college works. <laughs> so, so they don't, for, specifically for people who don't know the difference between private colleges and for-profit colleges. Mm-hmm. They think public colleges sounds not as good as private or for-profit, and there are people like this, and they're they're often like parents of immigrants. Um, they're often, um, you know, people whose parents didn't go to college in general, right? Mm-hmm. So they're, they're ignorant in a certain sense and they're, and, but they know, the one thing they do know is that if they want to be a, a real citizen of the middle class, they have to go to college. Mm-hmm. So they are vulnerable to the pitch. Um, and so it's, it's, You were saying about tribes, it's not just that they're poor. They have to be poor, by the way, because otherwise they won't be eligible for federal aid. And this, as I said, it's a federal aid gaming system. Nobody who's not poor would ever be approached by for-profit colleges. They're only interested in that. But it's not just that. You have to intersect two things. You have to intersect being poor and being ignorant. Um, and so that's that's where you really get the predatory behavior. And you, it's not just for-profit colleges. You also have payday lenders doing exactly mm-hmm. the same kind of thing, Vulnerable, looking for vulnerable people who have no other options.
3: Low-information voters, I think the phrase is in some circles. Yeah, that's a um, sort
2: of equivalent in the in the world of politics.
3: Yeah, uh, but it, there's something else that goes into the mix for for-profit colleges, isn't there? A, a desire to get ahead, improve yourself. I mean, that's that's got to be measured. is that measured in some way? Is that part of the 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 tribe that you're you're put in by the by the data miners, or does that show up anyway?
2: Certainly, certainly, yes, absolutely. I mean, and and in fact, like the real way this works is you know. Uh, the way Google ads are sold is by auction and by keywords. So definitely the for-profit colleges are paying big bucks for keywords such as college, go to college, where can I go to college? You know, phrases like that. Mm-hmm. But they're particularly interested in a certain demographic.
3: Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, you're being punished for being ambitious but in the wrong demographic. Exactly. It's a fascinating book. Uh and uh, you have uh, some suggestions at the end uh, for ways to deal with this so that the picture is not all bleak. Have you had any feedback or brush blowback from the industry after this book was published?
2: You know, I haven't. I was expecting more than I got. I, um, I've gotten a lot of sheepish data scientists saying, wow, I'd never really thought about it. I've got a lot of silence. Um, I'm starting to feel a little pushback. Um, from the tech giants mm. indirectly, I think there's just an enormous amount of uh interest right now in antitrust law mm-hmm. and whether it can try to push back against the power of Google and Facebook, and I have strong opinions about that. um One of the things I call for near the end of the book with respect to political ads is like the fact that we we have no idea what kind of messages are being sent to people on Facebook. And we even had f- voter suppression ads. Um, they were, br- the only reason we know about that is because the Trump administration, the Trump campaign actually bragged that they were sending out voter suppression ads to mm. African Americans on Facebook to keep them from voting. Mm. Uh, but we haven't seen what they say. Maybe, maybe they're false information. We have no idea. There's, it's complete, um, it's completely opaque. So I was calling for, um, you know, show us, show us the ads. Show us all of them. Let me, as a journalist, look to see if you're sending different messages to different people, if you're sending false information to people. What kind of manipulation is this? And we know it's propaganda. That's kind of understood.
3: Well, advertising is propaganda.
2: Yeah. And political Persever. advertising.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but the, I think it just – it enters an even more dangerous uh, territory when you can – when you can tailor your message to exactly the person who is going to see it, and no one else is going to see it. And that's why I worry about that. So, th- just this week, I realized I heard that Facebook has agreed yeah. to do something along these lines, and that's really good news.
3: You know, I'm, I'm reminded as you as you talk about that uh, of another book I read recently, which is Tim Wu's uh, book about uh, the attention merchants. And yes. basically, what you're describing is what advertisers have been trying to do for a hundred years now, which is A, to attract our attention, and B, to talk to only likely prospects. Exactly. And and technology has been, you know, sort of a a golden window into that promised land uh, for them, not for us. For them, Uh,
2: not for us. I would would argue that we should just make it illegal to tailor political advertisement. I I feel like we've already got enough evidence that it's a bad idea. Like we should just – Not let them decide exactly who this is going to be seen by. We should say you can show the ad to everyone or no one or a random selection of people, but you can't decide who should see this.
5: Douglas Rushkoff is a prolific writer, documentarian, and lecturer whose work focuses on human autonomy in the digital age. He is the author of 15 best-selling books on media, technology, and society, including Program or Be Programmed, Present Shock, and Coercion: Why We Listen to What They Say. He has made such award-winning PBS Frontline documentaries as Generation Like Merchants of Cool, and The Persuaders, and is the author of the graphic novels Testament and Alistair and Adolf. He also hosts his own podcast called Team Human, and his latest book is entitled Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity, I think Ralph Nader has met his match. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Douglas Rushkoff. Thanks for having me.
6: Welcome indeed, Douglas Rushkoff. You are a rare combination of a consultant to business with an independent mind. So you know what the story is inside these market manipulators, and you also come at it from a consumer perspective on how to fight back here. One of the comments on one of your earlier books called Coercion, Why We Listen to What They Say, says this, quote, marketing continues to grow more aggressive and Rushkoff, tracks the increasingly coercive techniques it employs to ingrain its message in the minds of consumers as well as the results. Toddlers can recognize the golden arches of McDonald's, young rebels get tattooed with a Nike swoosh. And news stories are increasingly taken verbatim from company press releases. That's the quote of the comment. And then they quote you as saying, corporations and consumers are in a coercive arms race. Every effort we make to regain authority over our actions is met by an even greater effort to usurp it, end quote. And the commentary by the reviewer says, as you survey the visual, oral, and scented shopping environment and interview salesmen public relations men, telemarketers, ad men, and consumers, Rushkoff, who admits to being one of them in his occasional capacity as paid corporate consultant, concludes that they are just us, and the only way the process of coercion can be reversed is to refuse to comply. Without us, he assures, they don't exist. That was written in 2000. 17 years later, with massive fine print contracts being clicked on without even being read, trapping consumers, and with ever more manipulative shaping of what consumers are purported to want, to seek, or to be trapped in a credit-debit economy, what's your view of whether consumers can really refuse to comply? How do you refuse to sign fine print contracts from various competitors' Who don't compete over the contract? How do you refuse to give someone your credit card in a hotel or rental car agency, and you want to pay cash? How do you refuse the intrusions of privacy and the most personal aspects of your life that Facebook and Equifax and others have combined?
0: <laughs> in certain ways, you know, participation kind of negates refusal. You know, at the time of the late. 90s, what I was most concerned about was sort of what the automated styles of coercion that I saw being worked on. You know, it's come to fruition today in the way that, say, Facebook uses the data it has about our past in order to market to us a future that we don't yet know we're going to live, but they do. You know, they know with 80% accuracy if. We're going to get divorced or get sick or change gender identity or go on a diet before we do. And then they market to us, not just in order to sell us their customers' diet plan, but in order to increase the odds that we actually do what we've been predicted to do. You know, when they start filling your news feed with, Hey, you know, you're feeling fat today or what are you really eating or want to try something else? What they're trying to do is to increase that percentage to get you from an 80% likelihood of going on a diet to a 90 or to 100. It's really to reduce human spontaneity. And that's the thing that I was getting concerned about was watching these already kind of dastardly Vance Packard era, hidden persuaders, psychological techniques, and looking at what happens when they move into the interactive space. And in many ways, it's gotten worse than I would have imagined, because I assumed that consumers would just get nauseous of this, they would get tired of it. And if they were being abused to this extent, that they would just log off. But instead, you know, we're taking the smartest kids out of Stamford and Teaching them what's called captology in the labs of BJ Fogg, you know, how to elicit these Pavlovian responses to every bell and swipe and text and button on our smartphones so that every swipe we make on our smartphone, it gets smarter about us as we get dumber about it. So, the overall, the, the biggest answer to your question, I guess, would be that we can't even really think of ourselves as consumers anymore. That once you put yourself in the role of the consumer, you're kind of lost, that we have to retake our roles as producers and participants and citizens rather than thinking of ourselves as the customers of these companies, because we're not. We're just the resources of these companies. What technologists do is program for what they call defensible outcomes. And that means to get you to be a customer, but so enmeshed that it will cost you more to get out than you would save by getting out. So if you run your software company on Amazon on cloud services, you know, good luck detangling from that, you know, and going to someone else. It's done. These are a permanent, lifelong decisions. And you know, the thing I did in the latest book, in this throwing rocks at the Google bus book, was really looked at why would developers be like this? Why do they want to have such frankly evil companies that really don't serve? You know, when. And Uber goes into a taxi market. They're not trying to help people get to places better. They just are looking for the low hanging fruit of an inefficient marketplace. And they're going to extract all the value of it and use their war chest of venture capital to lobby, as you would say, you know, to lobby laws to promote their monopolies, the same as Amazon going to books. But when you talk to the developers, they don't understand that there's another way. I mean, there's this one moment where it all became clear to me is when I saw a friend of mine, Evan Williams, one of the founders of Twitter, he was on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with the number $4.3 billion under his photo, which was the amount of money he made when that company had its IPO. And I thought, this guy is screwed. If you've got 4.3 billion dollars on the day of your IPO and your investors are expecting you to make a 100x, 100 times returns, then you're going to have to destroy your company or destroy everybody that uses it. You're going to have to adopt these, you know, rapacious monopolistic strategies and you only establish a monopoly in order to leverage that monopoly and then go take over another one. So the minute that you interact with any of these companies as a writer, you know, I wrote the one book that you were talking about, Programmer Be Programmed. I wanted to say something really, you know, important in this book about, you know, taking charge of your digital life and realizing that if you are not in charge, if you are not programming your own digital life, and I don't mean necessarily with code, but in the way you use these things, then you are the stooge, then you are being programmed by it. And I did that book with a very independent publisher who did not sell on Amazon because if you sell on Amazon, you've got to sell at a 60% discount and you can't undercut them. There's all of these rules that make it really, really hard to make money if you're not on Amazon or if you are on Amazon, but impossible to distribute your book if you're not. If I go on your show or on NPR and talk about a book everybody goes to amazon to see it yet this book with an independent publisher i ended up selling more copies of that than most of my other books and at a much higher margin because we weren't paying 60% and we could sell it cheaper and sell it as a paperback Interesting. so what i would argue is that you can go around the system you know you don't have to use uber you could use lyft you don't have to use lyft you could use a local cab company i mean most of them have little apps now cuz they've caught up you can operate outside that system. And I agree. Uh, Platform cooperatives are a terrific alternative to the Platform monopolies that are being set up by these companies. These are worker owned companies, or a notion that I kind of borrowed from the Catholic popes of the early part of the 20th century, where they were arguing for something they called distributism, which means that the workers need to own the means of production, whether that in their time it was the little tools that they used to be plumbers or carpenters, or today whether they're co owners in the platform that they're building. Because if they're owners of the platform, they and all of a sudden, the priorities change. They're no longer growth-obsessed corporate monoliths, which is the real problem here. It's the growth imperative in the economy. And instead, they start to think about how can we optimize for the velocity of money. How can we optimize for transactions? How can we operate more like a family business that's looking at how do we create a sustainable business that enriches the marketplace on which it depends rather than a short-term business that balloons by destroying the marketplace from which it's extracting value. The problem with the way that we're currently developing technology is that we're not looking at how can we make technologies that make people's lives better or more convenient or that helps them create value as people. Technologies that we are building understand human beings purely as consumers and not even traditional consumers that need this good or service, but consumers are just collections of data that we can mine in order to sell. That's what you are. You're no longer paying with your money. You don't have money. Consumers don't have money. The middle class is gone. All they've got left to pay with is their data. And that's a really difficult position to be in. So we develop new kinds of technologies that are really just new ways of collecting rent by learning more and more about who we are, And then using that information to reduce our spontaneity, to thwart our cognitive abilities. So the only real response, and I I hate to say it, is to drop out to a large extent. It doesn't mean dropping out of technology, but it means not subscribing to all of these platforms. It means becoming aware of what are called the externalities of every technology purchase and Um, Use you make. It's to look at that smartphone and realize that the rare earth metals in that smartphone required little kids to go into caves in the Congo at gunpoint to get those minerals. So people always ask me, oh, what's the most environmentally friendly phone I can get next? It's like your best next smartphone is the smartphone you already have and not to get another one. But it's very hard for people to kind of to, to wrap their heads around this. And an important point to make is that, you know, it's not necessarily the fault of the kids who are working at Google and Facebook and everywhere else, even some of the people who are running it. They just come up with a technology idea. They go to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley and they ask for money. And then all of a sudden they're on a certain kind of a hamster wheel that's requiring them to grow in order to survive. So the answer is, and this is what I'm trying to do now, this is what throwing rocks at the Google bus is really about, is speaking not just to the public, but to developers saying, there's another way. How about instead of having a one out of a million chance of becoming a billionaire, how about a one out of a hundred chance of becoming a millionaire? Isn't just having some millions enough? Then you could have a sustainable company. Then you could look about at how can you make your market wealthy rather than poor? How can you run your company like a family business? How can you start moving towards a steady state economy with dividends and payouts rather than a growth-based economy that's always about capital and selling it?
6: Did you know there's a company that agrees with you, Patagonia? Yvonne Chouinard, the founder and CEO of Patagonia that produces outdoor clothing and is very successful.
0: Uh, I know. And they're one of the few examples I get to bring up, you know, when I'm doing a talk for these people. But the thing that you have to realize, and I haven't said this publicly before, but, you know, I went, I I got invited out to a, a dinner with these super wealthy CEOs. I mean, a couple of them were like billionaire people. And the conversation eventually turned to their bomb shelters, to their apocalypse survival scenarios, like one of them wanted to know, how do I maintain the uh, allegiance of my security force after money's not worth anything? Or where should I be buying land for climate change in Anchorage, Alaska, or down in New Zealand? First, as if I really know the answers to these questions. But the thing I keep telling them is, look, rather than trying to figure out how are you going to make enough money to insulate yourself from this horrible world, what about spending your effort making the world into a place where you don't feel the need to insulate yourself from it, then you won't need to be earning 10,000 times your average employee. You won't need billions of dollars. It used to be really okay just to have millions or even just hundreds of thousands and you could get by, you know, but it doesn't work if you really see the world as this thing to rise above rather than this community to join.
7: There's retail, um, which is highly concentrated, Uh, but also uh, let's just say you want to find something out that you don't know, or even if you want to find out what the latest showings are at the movie you want to see this weekend. Say you use a search engine. How many choices you got there?
4: Well, you really just have one. I mean, the the folks from Google will say, oh, we got choice. You know, you can go over to Bing. Uh, But anyone who sort of moves back and forth between Bing and Google knows that Google has collected more information, that their searches are, uh, because there's more people using it on a day-to-day basis... The search uh, works better, uh, so this is a, a case in which the 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 nature of the technology result it tends to result in concentration of people going to one place uh, so you, you know for all intents i mean as you 're pointing out, there really isn 't any real choice if you actually, you want a sophisticated search you got to go to google yeah well you got google you
7: got yahoo you got microsoft you got bing you got Duck, Duck go. And uh, one thing about Google is that they will actually uh, keep and then sell uh, your search, the, the information you search on. You
4: know? Yeah, yeah, and in many ways, it's like they say this is our private information. We've we collected this information. This is our business. But in many ways, think about that information that they've collected. This is information about you. It's yeah. about, it's the information about how how you've been living your life, what you've been searching for, what you, what you've been buying, what you've been thinking, what you've been reading. They even know how long the mouse wavers over a particular product you might
7: want to buy online. I mean, you know, it, it's it, and and by the way, I I contest the
4: idea that that's their information. It's our information. It's right. my it's it's at my personal information, and collectively, when you put it into a big pile, it is the public information. This is the information about what the public is doing. Right. So, uh, it, it, uh, there have been various times in this country when we've had uh, cases in which we said, "Oh, you know." Uh, All that information that you've put behind your wall, okay, maybe you actually, you've, you've, uh, you've stored all of the grain in a particular part of this country in your silo. Well, you have to tell us, the public, how much grain is in that silo so we know you are not speculating on the knowledge that you're gaining from how much grain is in your silo. So you can't corner the market. So you can't corner the market. You can't manipulate us. You can't. uh, uh, sort of do with us what you will. And that is our information and we are going to have it. So one of the things that we should be thinking about in this country right now is saying, hey, all that information that Google is gathering about, uh, what we're searching, also where we're driving, you know, through their Google Maps and ways. Yeah. That's our information. That is public information. That is information that belongs to us and they have put it behind their walls and we need to get it back.
7: But I mean, like, if you just look at so we just talked about search engines. But if you want to go to uh, do business in the arcade food and entertainment uh, uh, business, you know uh, about two companies uh, control about ninety six percent. That's C E C Entertainment Inc. and Dave and Buster's. They got they pretty much divided up. After that, if you just want to get like paper products, you know you got Kimberly Clark, you got Procter and Gamble, you got Georgia Pacific. They kind of divided up into thirds. They're, they got those three got about 90 percent. Wireless telecommunication carriers, four. You got Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile. They got about 94 percent. Satellite providers. You want to go get satellite? You call Direct TV or Dish Network. What about getting a getting a, a Coca-Cola? You know, uh, you know, uh, we call it pop where I'm from. But you're dealing with Coke, you're dealing with, see, well, look what I just said, Coca-Cola, right? But you're dealing with Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or Dr. Pepper, Snapple. I mean, I could go on and on. Is this, is this a good way to run an economy? And does it have to be this way?
4: Well, some people do say it is a good way to run this economy, and they've actually won the debate for the last 35 years. I think it's now increasingly evident that it is a, f- a terrible way to run the economy. It crushes opportunity. It chokes off growth. It results in fewer jobs. It results in lesser jobs. It results in lower wages. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the the key thing is, I mean, in many cases, see, what you just said, you, you mentioned these various uh, uh, sectors in which two or three companies Uh, uh, control everything yeah but the thing it's actually worse than that often because these companies then engage in cartel behavior they chop up the country into different regions they say you know what you go take care of business there and i'll take care of business here so even though it looks like there's two companies it looks like there's three companies it's actually where you are it's often just one company sure and uh, well you made the point when it comes to autos
7: you know that uh, it's, it, it, it may look like three companies, but it's only one because they all uh, engage the same supplier network. They have abandoned vertical integration, and they just kind of buy from the same people. So if you've got a flaw in, in, the, in the supplier, then the flaw could end up in all three uh, brands.
4: Yeah, and that's a, a fantastically important point is, you know, we're, we're talking about concentration, you know, how it harms us politically, how it harms us economically, how it harms us as workers and as consumers. Uh, the other problem with concentration is that the complex systems that we depend on, the financial system, the banking system, the industrial system, when there's concentration in those systems, it makes those systems fragile. It makes those systems subject to cascading crashes. Some of you will remember the term too big to fail, which we applied to the banks back at the time of the bailout in 2008, 2009. What is too big to fail? It's when you allow That's right. the few to concentrate their risk. And by concentrating their risk, it allows them to socialize their risk because someone has to bail them out when things go wrong because otherwise all of society suffers.
7: Well, you know, uh, a thing about that, too, is that uh, that, we passed a law that said that if you're too big to fail, then you would be designated as a strategically uh, important financial institution, a SIFI. And they are complaining about being called SIFIs. Uh, and there's an answer. If you don't want to be a siffy you can just break up and downsize. But we really don't see that happening. They're too busy trying to lobby Congress.
4: Oh, you know, if you got that's the thing about monopoly profits. Uh, you know, if you got there are some theories that say that if you got monopoly profits, you reinvest them in innovation. I, in all of my time studying this, have seen that very, very rarely. If you got monopoly profits, what you invest them in is buying power. Yeah, you buy, yeah, that's that's an interesting commodity uh, around here in Congress. Um, it's a lot cheaper than buying innovation.
1: We are in the midst of our 2-in-1 Winter Fundraiser, which is both a fundraiser to fight climate change through Climate Ride and also a membership drive to help sustain the show. And so I just want to thank a couple more Climate Ride donors today. A huge thanks to Gretchen G., Matthew G., no relation, and Andre D. And as a reminder... Donations to Climate Rights support their efforts to help climate and active transport nonprofits fundraise. They're like a whole fundraising team for groups who often can't afford to have fundraising teams. So imagine there's an advocacy group working to build more bike trails through a city. They can use Climate Ride to raise thousands of dollars towards their efforts without having to manage any of the logistics. So they just recruit themselves and or their friends and colleagues to do this awesome multi-day hike or ride through Climate Ride. And then they fundraise from friends and acquaintances for their efforts. And I'm sure you can imagine how helpful that would be for small groups. So that's Climate Ride's mission. And they're always looking to expand, to do more events, give people more opportunities to fundraise for the causes that they care about, and... So that's the goal that I'm raising money for this year. Uh, if that seems worthwhile to you, and you want to support my efforts, then I hope you'll donate. And if you think this show is worthwhile, and you get some value out of it, then I also hope that you will take advantage of the special offer we have going right now for anyone who becomes a member on Patreon, and and donates to Climate Ride. Uh, Besides getting all of the bonus content and ad-free versions of the show that we put out for members, new members who also donate $25 or more to Climate Ride can receive a t-shirt or hoodie as a thank you for supporting both causes. For all of the details, just head to bestoftheleft.com and click the huge Winter Fundraiser banner on the homepage, or, of course, there is a convenient link right in the show notes that you can probably click from the device you're using to listen to me say this right now. Thank you in advance so much for your support.
8: So when people voice fears of artificial intelligence, very often they invoke images of humanoid robots run amok, you know, Terminator. You know, that might be something to consider, but that's a distant threat. Or we fret about digital surveillance with metaphors from the past. 1984, George Orwell's 1984, it's hitting the bestseller lists again. It's a great book, but it's not the correct dystopia for the 21st century. What we need to fear most is not what artificial intelligence will do to us on its own, but how the people in power will use artificial intelligence to control us and to manipulate us in novel, sometimes hidden, subtle, and in unexpected ways. Much of the technology that threatens our freedom and our dignity in the near-term future is being developed by companies in the business of capturing and selling our data and our attention to advertisers and others. Facebook, Google, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent. Now, artificial intelligence has started bolstering their business as well. And it may seem like artificial intelligence is just the next thing after online ads. It's not. It's a jump in category. It's a whole different world. And it has great potential. It, ha- it could accelerate our understanding of many areas of study and research. But to paraphrase a famous Hollywood philosopher, with prodigious potential, come prodigious risk. Now let's look at a basic fact of our digital lives, online ads, right? We kind of dismiss them, they seem crude and ineffective. We've all had the experience of being followed on the web uh, by an ad based on something we searched or read. You know, you look up a pair of boots and for a week those boots are following you around everywhere you go. Even after you come and buy them, they're still following you around we're kind of inured to that kind of basic, cheap manipulation. We roll our eyes and we think, you know what? These things don't work. Except online, the digital technologies are not just ads. Now, to understand that, let's think of a physical world example. You know how at the checkout counters uh, near supermarkets, near the cashier, there's candy and gum at the eye level of kids? Now, that's designed to make them whine at their parents, just as the parents are about to sort of check out. Now, that's a persuasion architecture. It's not nice, but it kind of works. That's why you see it in every supermarket. Now, in the physical world, such persuasion architectures are kind of limited because you can only put so many things by the cashier, right? And um, the candy and gum, It's the same for everyone, even though it mostly works only for people who have whiny little humans beside them. In the physical world, we live with those limitations. In the digital world, though, persuasion architectures can be built at the scale of billions, and they can target, infer, understand, and be deployed at individuals one by one, by figuring out your weaknesses, and they can be sent to everyone's phone private screen, so it's not visible to us. And that's different. And that's just one of the basic things that artificial intelligence can do. Now, let's take an example. Let's say you want to sell plane tickets to Vegas, right? So in the old world, you'd think of some demographics to target based on experience and what you can guess. You might try to advertise to men between the ages of 25 and 35 or people who have a high uh, limit on their credit card or retired couples, right? That's what you would do in the past. With big data and machine learning, that's not how it works anymore. So, to imagine that. Think of all the data that Facebook has on you. Every status update you ever typed, every messenger conversation, Every place you logged in from. Um, all your photographs that you uploaded there. If you start typing something and change your mind and delete it, Facebook keeps those and analyzes them, too. Increasingly, it tries to match you with your, your offline data. It also purchases a lot of data from data brokers. It could be everything from your financial records to a good chunk of your browsing history. Right? Right? In the U.S., such data is routinely collected, collated, and sold. In Europe, they have tougher rules. So what happens then is, by churning through all that data, these machine learning algorithms, that's why they're called learning algorithms, they learn to understand the characteristics of people who purchased tickets to Vegas before when they learn this from existing data, they also learn how to apply this to new people. So if they're presented with a new person, they can classify whether that person is likely to buy a ticket to Vegas or not. Fine. You're thinking an offer to buy tickets to Vegas. I can ignore that. But the problem isn't that. The problem is we no longer really understand how these complex algorithms work. We don't understand how they're doing this categorization. It's giant matrices, thousands of rows and columns, maybe millions of rows and columns. And not the programmers, and not anybody who looks at it, even if you have all the data, understand anymore how exactly it's operating any more than you'd know what I was thinking right now if you were shown a cross-section of my brain. It's like we're not programming anymore, we're growing intelligence that we don't truly understand. And these things only work if there's an enormous amount of data, so they also um, encourage deep surveillance on all of us so that the machine learning algorithms can... That's why Facebook wants to collect all the data it can about you. The algorithms work better. So let's push that Vegas example a bit. What if the system that we do not understand was picking up that it's easier to sell Vegas tickets to people who are bipolar and about to enter the manic phase? Such people tend to become overspenders, compulsive gamblers. They could do this, and you'd have no clue that's what they were picking up on. I gave this example to a bunch of computer scientists once, and afterwards, one of them came up to me. He was troubled, and he said, that's why I couldn't publish it. I was like, couldn't publish what? He had tried to see whether you can indeed figure out the onset of mania from social media posts before clinical symptoms. And it had worked. And it had worked very well. And he had no idea how it worked, or what it was picking up on. Now, the problem isn't solved if he doesn't publish it, because there are already companies that are developing this kind of technology, and a lot of the stuff is just off the shelf. This is not very difficult anymore. Do you ever go on YouTube, meaning to watch one video, and an hour later you watch 27? (laughs) You know how YouTube has this column on the right that says, up next, and it auto-plays something. It's an algorithm, picking what it thinks that you might be interested in and maybe not find on your own. It's not a human editor. It's what algorithms do. It picks up on what you have watched and what people like you have watched and infers that that must be what you're interested in, what you want more of, and just shows you more. sounds like a benign and useful feature, except when it isn't. So, in 2016, I attended um, rallies of then-candidate Donald Trump to study, uh, as a scholar, the movement supporting him. I studied social movements, so uh, I was studying it, too. And then I wanted to write something about one of his rallies, so I watched it a few times on YouTube. YouTube started recommending to me and autoplaying to me white supremacist videos an increasing order of extremism. If I watched one, it served up one even more extreme, and autoplay that one, too. If you watch Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders' content, YouTube recommends and autoplays Conspiracy Left, and it goes downhill from there. Well, you might be thinking this is politics, but it's not. This isn't about politics. It's just the algorithm figuring out human behavior. I once watched a video about vegetarianism on YouTube, and YouTube recommended and autoplayed played a video about being vegan. It's like you're never hardcore enough for YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on? Now, YouTube's algorithm is proprietary, but here's what I think is going on. The algorithm has figured out that if you can entice people, into thinking that you can show them something more hardcore, they're more likely to stay on the site, watching video after video going down that rabbit hole, while Google serves them ads. Now, with nobody minding the ethics of the store, these sites can profile people who are Jew-haters, who think that Jews are parasites, and who have such explicit anti-Semitic content, and let you target them with ads. They can also mobilize algorithms to find for you lookalike audiences, people who do not have such explicit anti-Semitic content on their profile, but whom the algorithm detects may be susceptible to such messages, and lets you target them with ads, too. Now, this may sound like an implausible example, but this is real. ProPublica investigated this and found that you can, indeed, do this on Facebook. And Facebook helpfully offered up suggestions on how to broaden that audience. BuzzFeed tried it for Google, and very quickly they found, yep, you can do it on Google, too. And it wasn't even expensive. The ProPublica reporter spent uh, about $30 to target this category. Um, So last year, Donald Trump's social media manager disclosed that they were using Facebook dark posts to demobilize people, not to persuade them, but to convince them not to vote at all. And to do that, they targeted specifically, for example, African-American men in key cities like Philadelphia. And I'm going to read exactly what he said. I'm quoting. They were using, quote, Non-public posts whose viewership the campaign controls so that only the people we want to see it, see it. We've modeled this. It will dramatically affect her ability to turn turn these people out. What's in those dark posts? We have no idea. Facebook won't tell us. So Facebook also algorithmically arranges the posts that your friends put on uh, Facebook or the pages you follow. It doesn't show you everything chronologically. It puts the order in the way that the algorithm thinks will entice you to stay on the site longer. Now, so this has a lot of consequences. You may be thinking somebody's snubbing you on Facebook. The algorithm may never be showing your post to them. The algorithm is prioritizing some of them in burying the others. Experiments show that what the algorithm picks to show you can affect your emotions. But that's not all. It also affects political behavior. So in 2010, in the midterm elections, Facebook did an experiment on 61 million people in the U.S. that was disclosed after the fact. So some people were shown today's election day, the simpler one, and some people were shown the one with that tiny tweak with those little thumbnails of your friends who clicked on I Voted. This simple tweak. Okay, So the pictures uh, were the only change. And that post, shown just once, turned out an additional 340,000 voters in that election, according to this research, as confirmed by the voter rolls. fluke? No. Because in 2012, they repeated the same experiment. And that time, that civic message, shown just once, turned out an additional... 270,000 voters. For reference, the 2016 U.S. presidential election was decided by about 100,000 votes. Now, Facebook can also very easily infer what your politics are, even if you've never disclosed them on the site, right? These algorithms can do that quite easily. What if a platform with that kind of power decides to turn out Supporters of one candidate over the other. How would we even know about it? Now, we started from someplace seemingly innocuous, online ads following us around, and we've landed someplace else. As a public and as citizens, we no longer know if we're seeing the same information or what anybody else is seeing. And without a common basis of information, Little by little, public debate is becoming impossible. And we're just at the beginning stages of this. These algorithms can quite easily infer things like your people's ethnicity, religious and political views, personality traits, intelligence, happiness, use of addictive substances, parental separation, age and genders, just from Facebook likes. These algorithms can identify protesters, even if their faces are partially concealed. These algorithms may be able to detect people's sexual orientation just from their dating profile pictures. Now, these are probabilistic guesses, so they're not going to be 100 percent right. But I don't see the powerful resisting the temptation to use these technologies just because there are some false positives which will, of course, create a whole other layer of problems. Imagine what a state can do with the immense amount of data it has on its citizens. China is already using face detection technology to identify and arrest people. And here's the tragedy. We're building this infrastructure of surveillance authoritarianism merely to get people to click on ads. And this won't be Orwell's authoritarianism. This isn't 1984. If authoritarianism is using overt fear to terrorize us, we'll be scared. But we'll know it. We'll hate it, and we'll resist it. But if the people in power are using these algorithms to quietly watch us, to judge us, and to nudge us, to predict and identify the troublemakers and the rebels, to deploy persuasion architectures at scale, and to manipulate individuals one by one using their personal individual weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And if they're doing it at scale, through our private screens, so that we don't even know what our fellow citizens and neighbors are seeing, that authoritarianism will envelop us like a spider's web. And we may not even know we're in it. So, um, Facebook's market capitalization is approaching half a trillion dollars. It's because it works great as a persuasion architecture. But the structure of that architecture is the same, whether you're selling shoes or whether you're selling politics. The algorithms do not know the difference. The same algorithms set loose upon us to make us more pliable for ads are also organizing our political, personal, and social information flows. And that's what's got to change. Now, don't get me wrong. We use digital platforms because they provide us with great value, Uh, I use Facebook to keep in touch with friends and family around the world. Uh, I've written about how crucial social media is for social movements. I have studied how these technologies can be used to circumvent censorship around the world. But it's not that the people who run Facebook or Google are maliciously and deliberately trying to make the country or the world more polarized, and encourage extremism. I read the many well-intentioned statements that uh, these people put out, but it's not the intent or the statements people in technology make that matter. It's the structures and business models they're building. And that's the core of the problem. Either Facebook is a giant con, of half a trillion dollars, and ads don't work on the site, that it doesn't work as a persuasion architecture, or its power of influence is of great concern. It's either one or the other. It's similar for Google, too. So what can we do? Uh, This needs to change. Now, I can't offer a simple recipe because we need to restructure the whole way our digital technology operates. Everything from the way um, technologies develop to the way the incentives, economic and otherwise, are built into the system, uh, we have to face and try to deal with the lack of transparency created by the proprietary algorithms, the structural challenge of machine learning's opacity. All this indiscriminate data that's being collected about us We have a big task in front of us. We have to mobilize our technology, our creativity, and yes, our politics, so that we can build artificial intelligence that supports us in our human goals. But that is also constrained by our human values. And I understand, this won't be easy. We might not even easily agree on what those terms mean. But if we take seriously how these systems that we depend on for so much operate, I don't see how we can postpone this conversation anymore. These structures are organizing how we function, and they're controlling what we can and we cannot do. And many of these ad finance platforms, they boast that they're free, In this context, it means that we are the product that's being sold. We need a digital economy where our data and our attention is not for sale to the highest bidding authoritarian or demagogue. back to that Hollywood paraphrase, we do want the prodigious potential of artificial intelligence and digital technology to blossom. But for that, we must face this prodigious menace, Okunite and now.
9: I just did a, I did a, a short video series on the power of prosecutors and district attorneys uh, that the uh, Brooklyn Defender Services put out, and they had a bunch of voices in it. Adam Foss, who's a former assistant district attorney out of Massachusetts, uh, DeRay McKesson, who is a spokesmodel for Patagonia uh, blue <laughs> vests, and uh, does some work on police reform, right. <laughs> and uh, and a bunch of other folks. And something DeRay said has stuck with me. He's like, look, I have to remind myself that people built all these systems and we can build different systems. And when you think about the technology world, it is important to remember optimistically that we, the way we design systems can determine the outcomes we get. It's, it's like architecture. It's like urban planning. You can design a city to divide people, to separate them from economic opportunity, to literally poison their water. Or you can design something that opens up the flow of business and creativity and community, brings people closer together, provides a, a cleaner ecology for folks to literally grow in. And I think where we are at with many of our technological environments is this is like early versions, and they're they're garbage, and they they're built environments that create really negative outcomes for many, and it wasn't foreseen. Uh, Because the people who built them had no interest in foreseeing them. They were not representative of the user base. Their incentives were not to draw people closer together or engage in meaningful exchange. They were to sell each and every one of us cut almost literally in a thousand different slices to advertisers so that they could sell us crap we don't want at prices we can't afford on credit that we should not have ever been extended that's what we're living in. So it's not just like, oh, Twitter's bad or Facebook brings out the worst in us. They're bringing out the worst in us is their business model and it's profitable and it's driven by a funding model of venture capital and a 10x return mandate that says, well, the only way we can support this is to sell people you know, in- into a sort of very um, beautifully bullshitted story. That comes down to a light version of slavery like we're, we're selling people mm-hmm. we're selling our identities we're selling our preferences we're selling our relationship data facebook knows me way better than my girlfriend mm-hmm. instagram knows me way better than my mother mm-hmm. ever did there's a very thin dotted line between how we see our communities cities all across not this country but just the world you know they all look the same they're all being gentrified in the exact same way they all have the The same design aesthetic. They all have the same kind of Starbucks vibe. They all have the artisanal bacon ear kale wraps food truck village. Because we're just copying and pasting this stuff. And the people who live there didn't choose it. The people who have the resources to define a space did. So it's not a fair fight. You thought the cigarette lobby (laughs) was hard. You thought just saying no was wrong. Like We are up against... You know the most addictive. We're up against consciously engineered addictive forces that would make R. J. Reynolds like jealous. Yeah. So, you know? H-
1: how do you how do you see these platforms evolve in ten, twenty years? I mean, I don't know if you have kids, but I'm wondering, like, what kind of social platforms will Michelle's kids no, be interacting with in ten, fifteen years? What's the future of Facebook and Twitter? So, uh,
9: Michelle's children will have more virtual friends than verifiably human <laughs> friends uh, in the future. Uh, that we, we will have bot friends. We will have assistants that optimize the tiniest decisions in our lives in the way that we use Google Maps and don't know how to navigate our own cities without them now, for those of us who are really plugged into the smartphone. Mm. Uh, we, we don't know where we're going. We were a blue dot on a screen. And I think the worst version of the future is where we all become uh, licensees <laughs> Uh, licensors of our own selves. We don't even have a right to ourselves because actually Google owns more of us than we do, or Equifax owns more of us than we do, and we are just subscribers. We, like we are Spotifying ourselves <laughs> to like live our own lives, and we could be cut. This is the we playlist that
2: you can use for your life.
9: Yeah, this is the food you can eat. This is where you can spend money. These are the friends you can have. These are the people you can have sex with. These are the places you can visit. That is the. A dystopic Black Mirror-like version of the future, where we have to sign an end-user license agreement
3: <laughs> to be ourselves. Yeah, yeah.
9: The the alternative is one where we say, "Hey," and there's a there's a possible coalition here where you get the libertarians and the property rights people and the civil liberties crowd together. And you're like, you know what? All that information is me. It is actually my property. Uh, My financial information, my GPS location data, my friend social graph, that's all parts of me in the same way that my blood is me, in the same way that this bed that I'm sitting on belongs to me and no one could just take it and then force me to pay for it again. So how do we change the balance of power that restores a sense of ownership and flips it on its head and says all right, Google, you want to optimize my life. You have to sign an end user agreement with me (laughs) to not lose all my crap, to encrypt my information, to be responsible, and to let me get my stuff back if I ever leave your service. And again, Google is just an example here. So that's what I want people to start advocating for and fighting for. I think it's it's a new front in a sort of human rights, civil rights, civil liberties war that You know, it's really not about it's it's the it's the data gentrification. Uh, It's it's a new frontier of uh, who owns what when the what is you.
1: We've just heard clips today, starting with Harry Shearer on the Show interviewing the author of Weapons of Math Destruction on the intersection of big data, targeted advertising, and elections. Ralph Nader interviewed the author of Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus about rethinking how we design technologies and business. Representative Keith Ellison on We The Podcast spoke with Barry Lynn about the monopolization of tech companies. We heard a TED Talk by Zainab Tufekci titled We're Building a dis- dystopia just to make people click on ads. And finally, we just heard Baratunde Thurston speaking on the Thinking Cat podcast about how we actually have the ability to choose how we design our environments, both in the real and digital worlds. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you.
10: Hi, Jay and Amanda. It's Patreon member Alan from Connecticut calling in on the Me Too, um, both in the bonus and the regular. Uh, In the bonus, uh, Amanda was talking about Al Franken and the SNL letter written by the ladies supporting him and saying it's, you know, whatever. That's bullshit. I work with people all day long and um, I might know them at work, but it doesn't mean that the way they treat me or the way they treat other people at work has any relationship to how they might treat someone else. And I think the child molestation analogy is an awesome one. Someone gets caught with child porn on their computer or child molestation or something like that. They are immediately blackballed. People are like, wow, he was always, I always lived next to that guy. I mean, even, even with some of the people who are mass shooting, I always lived next to that guy and, and always seemed like a real nice guy. You know, never, never knew that any of this would happen. But that doesn't justify or excuse that, that people do that. And I can't but help think that, that all this needs to go back to, playgrounds and early education schools and I know Amanda was talking about you know I wish we could sentence them or send them to a class like you do a DWI to get learned in this stuff and the learning has to happen in in early childhood and so forth I you know my son was talking about Al Frankton with me because because I brought it up and he said you know He seems like he's better than the other guys that are doing it. The other guys are really, really bad, but, you know, he's not so bad. And so I have to explore that a little bit more with him because, like, (laughs) that's not cool. And so I'm glad that that came up because at least I can start to address and see, like, why do you think that this one person is better than the other? Because it's about behaviors and behaviors need to be addressed they need to be addressed and taught as children, but they need to be addressed as adults. And I can go on some quite some time, which I'll skip at this point, but I'll call back later on what what an equal punishment is, because I have some thoughts on that. But we can't allow any of this to be okay. And, and that's obvious. But we need to make parallelisms to other things that people would automatically say that's not okay. Anyway, great topic. Um, great bonus edition. Thanks. And stay awesome.
11: Hey Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. I had a couple of thoughts you would mentioned about how to combat issues around men that tie into feminism. I think the way to really look at it is kind of similar to what you kind of alluded to with that clip you played at the end in regards to racism. That a lot of uh, conservative movements like the men's rights movement and a lot of conservative politics in general is about a reaction to something it's not so much a, an honest discussion, it's a way of maintaining the existing hierarchy. And, you know, for instance, the Men's Rights Movement is about maintaining that balance where men have more power over women. And what what we have to sort of do, and I'm, I'm not the best person, I you know, I work in the medical field, I'm not a sociologist, but, you know, I think, okay, for instance, you have men who think that their right to being intruded on because of feminism, you have to make them realize That, for instance, if their wife, their sister, their female friend has a better experience in their day-to-day life, in their relationships, etc., that's going to be better for them as a man. Wouldn't it be better, again, to sort of allude back to what you said, that men don't go around feeling resentful of how they have to act, you know, because they realize that if everyone acts respectful towards everybody else, Everyone benefits. Um, I hope that makes sense. I'm not waffling. Uh, thanks a lot for the show, as always. Take care.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, I just want to tack on a few thoughts on today's topic. I, I think that today's topic really crystallizes... An issue that has been going through my head in, in a variety of ways over the last few years. you know if you've been listening for a while you may remember a few years ago I, I started touching on this uh, this recurring theme of the dichotomy between the individual and the social good. and the way that usually manifests itself is uh, what is purely and selfishly good for an individual is very often bad for society. And in reverse, can sometimes be true, like what's good for society will obviously be good for many people individually, but it may not be as good. It may not allow you to selfishly pursue what you want to to get as rich as possible or whatever. So there's this tension there between the the individual and the social. And and what made me start thinking about this originally is I, I began reading some philosophy on happiness and some... Philosophy of finances, you know, not, not like Jim Cramer mad money, what stock to buy, but it it turned out that it was very intertwined with happiness, actually. So that's how I came across them both sort of at the same time. And, and the, the, the linking factor between the two is to focus on the self primarily, which was very much at odds with my mentality before of focusing on the social and the political. Obviously, this show is an extension of my interest and, and and my belief that it matters a lot to focus on the social good and the political process to decide how society should run itself. So I, I began looking into these things. I, I just sort of stumbled onto them. You know, A friend recommended a blog to me, and I started reading it, and, and a lot of it resonated with me. And so, you know, I got into it and it made me have this this thought about the the individual versus the societal, you know, when you're when you're talking about personal finances or personal happiness, if you depend on political processes or social mechanisms to find your happiness or to guide your own personal like financial life or to guide your career life, anything along those lines then you're pretty much doomed to be in a bad mood most of the time and be constantly cursing politicians for your inability to get ahead. And so the the tension between these ideas, the the traditionally progressive idea that society and social mechanisms matter, and, and the conservative idea that the individual matters and you just need to do for yourself what you can and don't worry about everyone else, both of those seem obviously to be wrong to me. Uh, If you go in the extreme in either direction, it, it just seems obviously wrong. And so today's episode is bringing all these thoughts back to me anew, but in a new way. Because the way that we can deal with technological monopolies and our own personal digital environments is, well, I, I guess to be honest, it, it's sort of what I've been thinking about more recently. Like, I, I sort of felt like I, I covered the the happiness and the financial management stuff a couple of years ago, and, and what I've been thinking about more now is personal digital management of one's life. You know, I I began experimenting with turning off all of my notifications. And honestly, I I feel lucky that I was never particularly interested in Facebook. So that wasn't like a habit I developed and needed to try to kick. But a lot of the things that we do with with our phones, on our computers, the way we shop, the way we live our lives, a lot of that can be Managed, You know, we can make decisions of how we interact with these things. We can decide to kick our habits for shopping on Amazon or scrolling through Facebook or whatever. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, that, that it's important to do that. But what I'm trying to do with uh, this episode, the previous episode, <laughs> more upcoming episodes that I, that I al- already see in the pipeline, is that it simply cannot be up to the individual to navigate these waters. And so, once again, as is so often the case, both are true. You can, digitally speaking, you can turn off your notifications and, and do a whole variety of things that, that help you break the habits that these corporations try to instill in you that, that get you addicted to their services. Yes, you can take steps to do that. But there's no reason to think that everyone is going to do that or that it wouldn't be for the social good for people to not be addicted to their technology. This is one of these topics that I've been planning on talking about in a lot more detail on a member's show. So I think we're going to do that pretty soon in an upcoming bonus episode. But the Super simple core thought that, that I've been coming around to is that I think it is totally reasonable to suggest or to just believe for yourself that maybe 90% of your personal energy should be directed at bettering your own life. In, in whatever way, the philosophy of happiness, the philosophy of finances, the uh, whatever, you're, you know, focusing on your own career, whatever it takes for you to expand your mind and, and grow as a person and make the best possible life you can for yourself. However, you cannot ignore the last 10% that absolutely must be dedicated to improving the social good. And I think this is what's lost, is that conservatives believe rightly that it's important to focus on yourself and, and to understand the power of what an individual can do to better their own life. And they believe that so fervently that they ignore the last 10%, and they ignore the necessity to focus on bettering society as a whole. And the progressives, on the other hand, often go the other way they are so focused on making society better and and focusing on the social that they forget to acknowledge the importance of the individual and 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 the ability for an individual to make changes in their own life and, and make one's own life better and so that that's the balance that i think is good and healthy to strike but both have to be incorporated, the individual and the social. And, and so the recommendations I would give for uh, today's episode, like, yeah, of course, I would recommend you turn off your notifications so that you don't get sucked into your technology. I would suggest you figure out uh, methods to wean yourself from social media and only use it in the ways that are truly productive instead of the ways where you get sucks down rabbit holes. Uh, I certainly recommend not using Google and using something like DuckDuckGo that protects your privacy. Uh, I would recommend using a VPN if you have the ability to plug into a VPN, a private, uh, a virtual private network, which makes it so that your computer is somewhat invisible to your ISPs and and the search algorithms so they can't really track you in the same way that, uh, that they would track you if you're just out in the open. So, yeah, there there are lots of things that you can do to individually protect yourself. I do those things, and I recommend people do them, but if I were to leave it there, I think it would be completely irresponsible. Obviously, as the person giving a TED talk today explained, we are building a dystopia for ourselves, and at the end of the day, no one can escape the dystopia. So, Obviously, we need to focus on the social good and focus on what we all would actually want and to understand that we have the ability to decide how we build the environments that we live in. So if you if you forget that point, if, if you miss that point, then, yeah, you can take all the individual action you want. You're just going to be doing a little bit better in a dystopia we all share. And for me, at least, that's not good enough. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That's also where you can learn about our winter fundraiser going on right now. Uh, but more importantly, it is absolutely how the program survives. And of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. Ironically, I know. Uh, You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best of the progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, also ironically, and sharing all the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.